You're listening to the King's Church Podcast. Visit us online at kingswisbeach.org.uk. Good evening and welcome to Kingswiz Beach this Friday evening. It's the third session of uh, looking at this book, Blessed, Broken and Given. Um, I just wanted to share something that made me smile. Um, it's the dedication at the front of this book by the author. It's to my wife, Holly, who is gluten-free and tries to avoid eating bread. I'm sure that's a comment on what she eats rather than her Christian walk, if you see what I mean. Um, And the other thing that encouraged me was realising that this book was only written three years ago, but actually he's been thinking about all these issues for at least 20 years before he sat down to write it. So it comes from experience as well as his theological degree and now over to Alan who has done far more research than I have I would like to point Thanks, out. Thanks Jackie, yeah. I, I, one of the things I'd like to do is actually talk about the book just briefly and in general. Um, when I was asked if I would be involved in this Friday conversation that we'd be researching a book I thought crumbs I don't actually read very many Christian books and what and I think back to a comment that I made or was made to me by somebody when Joan and I first started coming to the fellowship, that that person didn't read Christian books. And I pondered on that when I started to research this one, because in fact, this book is not a difficult book to read. And if anybody is actually thinking, I'm struggling with Christian books, the theology Mm -hmm. makes me think hard, I don't understand it. It goes back to when I was about 15 or 16 and first became a Christian and was reading Christian books. I suspect that the books I was asked to read were too much for me. Yes. And that probably had an influence on why and how I approach Christian books even to this day. But this one, if you're struggling, this one is an easy book to read. The author's very good. He explains his points very carefully and the illustrations are are equally good. And, And also, as Matt has mentioned before, if reading isn't your thing, then get hold of the audio book and listen to it. That's another way of accessing it. Now, Alan, you wanted to ask the church a couple of questions before we started, and we can use that on live chat. Now, you'll appreciate I'm a bit out of practice, but I will try and keep up with the conversation, so please keep them coming, and I'll bring them in as I can. So, Alan, what were your two questions? So the book is quite evidently about bread. And and why is that? Two simple questions I got right at the beginning. How many times do you think bread is mentioned in the Bible? That's the first question. And the second one, how many types of bread do you think there are? How many types of bread? It's, um, It's not as simple as it first seems. Okay, over to you. So please let us have your thoughts about those two questions, please. Thank you. Um, And thank you to everyone who's joined us so far. Uh, It's great to see you all. Okay, so the first, what we're doing is we're um, putting the two chapters in two bits. So we'll try and do the first chapter we're dealing with names in the first half hour. There'll then be um, some songs. Uh, If you want the newsletter, you'll have to uh, go for your email version tonight for any notices. And then for the second half, we'll then deal with the next chapter, which is about um, tables or communion. 
Okay. Over to you, Alan. Okay, we're, we're looking at names, and names may be straightforward. And I've already identified James behind the cameras today, Jackie and I are here. We've already, all three of us, without being consciously aware of it, addressed ourselves by our names. Names are important. We may not give much thought to it, but we actually there is a great deal behind names. And as the author of this book makes a point early on, uh, names are important to us, but we actually have no say in the name that we were given when we were born and our parents named us. Okay, so I've done a bit of research uh, for tonight. So Alan, do you know what your name means? I managed to find about three or four versions. No, I don't. It's not something that's ever intrigued me, so I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Okay, so the research uh, I made, he could be Little Rock, or handsome, I'm sure his wife won't forgive me for that one. Um, rock, handsome, cheerful, pleasant. Uh, the person who holds the flag in front of the army um, were the main ones I came up with. So do any of those describe you, would you say? Every single one of them, of course. <laughs> What about, you, what about you, Jackie? Come on. Um, yes, I also researched my name. Um, there are two strands to it. It could be a feminine version of Jacob, so in which case I'm a supplanter, I seize power from someone else. Or the one I prefer, you won't be surprised, uh, the meaning is may God protect, person loved by God. Um, beautiful flowers seems a bit vague. Um, and the one I would like to live up to, but I'm sure I have my bad days, is loving and kind person of trustworthiness. Um, I had a lucky escape because my parents were toying with the idea of Marilyn, so I am forever grateful that actually they did name me Jacqueline, although of course I prefer uh, Jackie on a day-to-day -day basis. That's an interesting point because many people have their names shortened, don't they? Mm -hmm. Do you have any problem with Jackie or Jacqueline? Um, on my birth certificates, it's Jacqueline, and the problem I have with it is, um, you know, whenever I was a kid and I was in trouble, I would hear Jacqueline, um, of course, <laughs> which, which told me I was in trouble. Um, and Jackie was something I chose for myself because um, I felt it was a bit more informal. Yeah, I think a great many people make slight changes to their names. We can think about the fellowship and yeah. how many people. I'm not going to name any of them, but you can think for yourself, people who were not known by the names that their parents gave them. Mm -hmm. Probably they've been shortened. Now, don't you have a story about your name? I, I do. And oh. for, 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 before I go into it, I'm, <laughs> I'm one of those people who doesn't like my name being shortened. It okay. can be shortened from Alan to Al, but I'm not very keen on it. And normally, if somebody attempts to do it, if they're a person I'm going to have an association with ongoing, I normally stop them right away. So I prefer you call me by my full name. I right. do it in various different ways. Yep. If it's somebody, I, it's a momentary acquaintance, then I let it pass normally. Okay. But I don't like it being short. Okay. But it can be. And that actually is a contraction of a great many names. Um, it can be shortened from Albert, Alistair, Aldo, Alfred. Algernon, Aloysius, and a few other. Think, what unkind parent named their child Aloysius or Algernon? Yes. And, <laughs> there we are. But Alan, yeah, I, the reason I was named Alan, it comes back to my father. Um, he was born around 1918, the end of the First World War, and he was named Alan Walter Hammond. And he grew up loving cricket. Uh, at the time when cricket was prominent in his life, there was a famous cricketer, Wally Hammond, Walter Hammond, played for the England team, 
dad also liked cricket it wasn't unnatural for him to be picked up mm -hmm. to have the same uh, nickname Wally or Walter and he, that existed for many many years but he was also called Tom by almost everybody who knew him including my mother mm -hmm. in fact I've never heard my mother call him anything else other than Tom all his friends associates work colleagues people who knew him all his everybody called him Tom I never understood why mm -hmm. I never found out why I suspect he didn't even know himself yeah but he certainly encouraged it uh, maybe because he joined the army as a young man aged 15 in the era when Tommy soldiers were called Tommies anyway right. he was called Tom so when I came along first born in my family they named me Alan simply because he never was oh okay um, when I went to his funeral if, if, if it was I, a bit humbling if I can stop you there because I see people are commenting on their names oh, uh, in, in the live chat I so, thought they probably uh, would yeah I wasn't ignoring you I was, I was uh, catching up with this so we have Oh right, so Dave thinks um, there are 279 types of bread and Mag Maggie thinks that bread is mentioned about a thousand times in the Bible and there are probably the same amount of types of bread around in the world. Uh, Anna's telling us that her name means grace. Uh, Andrew is manly. Joan is God is gracious. Uh, Margaret is pearl in Greek. Um, and Maggie shares that when she was in trouble as a child, it was Margaret Elizabeth. <laughs> uh, so I have a fellow feeling there, Maggie. Um, oh, right. Okay. Uh, Fiona's telling me that the NIV concordance has three columns worth of entries under bread. So she's not counting them, but there are a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, Verity is telling me that Katrina means purity, Lara means protected, Elijah means the Lord is my God. And for Verity, those names cover her main prayers for the lives of her children, which I think is a really powerful and lovely thing. Okay, so back to the chapter. Uh, what struck you in the, this chapter that was very meaningful for you? I think there are quite a few things. And, and, and we're going on in a minute to talk about why people change their names. And, and, and we know that God was the first person to change somebody's name. And we'll come to that story yeah. very briefly. But there are lots of reasons why people change them. Uh, people of foreign extraction sometimes change their names when they want to fit into a new society. Yeah. They may anglicise or whatever culture they're moving into their name so it fits in and we can think of people with complicated eastern european names who may change it yeah. to fit the british culture yeah. um we've got people who because he's living in america glenn he's given us american um examples jewish immigrants going into america israel berlin became irving berlin mm -hmm. and nathan bernbaum became george burns and the author describes how his father who was a hindu um, born in the Far East, changed his name, uh, but he changed, changed his name for love. He, when he met Glenn's mother, she was a Christian, his, uh, his father was a Hindu, his, the, the, his mother said, I won't marry you because you're not a Christian. Mm. So he changed his name to an English style name or Western style. He actually just began reading the Bible because she was a Christian, Yeah, picked on David, Mm -hmm. and changed his name to David. I don't know what his surname was, presumably Pachium, yeah. but the name they chose. Yeah, of course. So people change their names for a raft of reasons. Yeah. 
and we know about Abraham and Abraham we'll come to that in just a minute but people are identified by their names yeah. and we can identify people great many if I say to you Elvis Presley does that yeah. mean anything to you yeah he was a rock star from the States southern states in the late 50s early 60s instantaneously you know what i'm talking about yeah that's because we're we have a similar age range <laughs> we'll, we'll do, let's try something a little more newer then a little bit closer <laughs> prince william yeah royal family royal family and if i say to you simply one word boris who am i talking about uh, I suspect you're talking about uh, our ex-Prime Minister and I hope you won't bring politics into it. No, I'm not going to bring politics Thank into you. it. But the point I'm making is that we could be, we're known sometimes by our name rather than who we are. And mm. our names identify us. And you and I have got a Welsh connection. I lived in we North, have. We, I lived in North Wales for 30 years where surnames like Jones, Edwards, Williams, Thomas and a few others are very commonplace. Davis. There are quite Griffiths, a few. Yeah. yeah, there are a lot. So it's not uncommon for people to be given unintentionally nicknames. So I'm going to give you two. Right. These are both associates of mine. I'm not going to identify their surname. I think it's highly unlikely they're watching this, but you never know. Mm -hmm. So one of them was called John Tat. From a very young age, uh, he was universally unkempt in his appearance. I won't tell you his genuine surname, but John Tatt went through the whole of his policing career being called that name. But an even more interesting one was a fellow who I later only knew him towards the end of my career. He was called Dins. Uh, why Dins? Couldn't work it out. His surname was one of these Welsh names. Mm -hmm. So I eventually I asked somebody who I knew had known him all this a long, long time. Yeah. And he said when he was a youngster, a probationer rather, at training school in the canteen, he did really eat his meal when somebody came in and decided they didn't want their meal. So this fellow proceeded then to demolish the second meal. He got immediately tagged with the name Two Dins, which was reduced quickly to Dins, and went through his entire police career being known as Dins. And everybody knew him as Dins and even addressed him such. How an incident as simple as that, simple act of gluttony, can identify somebody for a very long time. Yes, and, and I suppose it shows how powerful names can Absolutely. be. That's the point and, I'm trying and, to get across. And also the issue that, you know, give what's the phrase, give a dog a bad name? Mm. Um, and what kind of personality or characteristic um, are you building into them? Yeah. And, and in the book he talks about, you know, as children, if you were called negative names, it, I'd be, yeah, I suspect quite a lot of us as, as adults have held on to those if that's been our experience mm -hmm. and we won't have forgotten them that's right i mean they both knew those nicknames yeah. and they weren't unperturbed by them no because they actually lived a different life yes but the point i'm making is how a momentary act can actually influence how somebody's called for a lifetime's career yes but isn't the whole mm. thrust of this chapter that what he's saying is god is so glorious in that where we think we're going the two questions are where have we come from where are we going mm -hmm. and when god intervenes he intervenes not to bring us down uh, but to rewrite our story and to give us hope and yeah the phrase they're using here is glory but um yeah that when god comes into a situation he makes it different and in the old testament we have abraham 
being renamed Abraham from Abraham because of a significant moment. That's right. Um, and when we, yeah, when we join God's family, um, when God is in our life and when we're doing life with him every day, um, then he's rewriting our story whether we're conscious of it or not. That's right. Um, and I think the other thrust of the book is as we begin to understand who God is and what he's doing in our lives, um, the Holy Spirit will help us treat other people in the same way we're being treated. Hmm. Follow That's that if you can. <laughs> You're going to trip me up somewhere. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> well, but what is the reason why Abraham is the first example of God changing somebody's name, isn't he? How did that come about? You know, we've got the story of... Well, actually, th given that we've only got about five minutes, <laughs> the story I want to go on to is the one of Hagar. Yeah, that's where um, it comes from. Yeah. Because so. um, I, I, I hadn't come across... I hadn't really thought of it in, in the way that the book thinks of it. Um, first of all, I hadn't noticed that in the encounter when Hagar's in the wilderness, uh, God's first question isn't, who are you? Um, the angel says, Hagar, servant of Sarah. So the angel knew exactly who he was talking to. Um, and the point being made in the book is that Hagar was the lowest of the low. She was a woman. She was an Egyptian in an is Israelite family. Um, and she was a slave and basically had to do what her mistress told her. And at this point, because of the... Um, silly isn't the right word um, because of the foolish actions taken by Abraham and Sarah to try and fulfill God's promise uh, Hagar ended up in the wilderness because uh, she couldn't hack it anymore basically and that's where God met her mm. so do you want to carry on with the story or I, I, am I, I on a roll because I, I don't I, I, want I can tell, I mean, we've got here, I've got it in my notes, says, Hagar was instructed by God, and here we go back to naming, of course, you will name the child Ishmael. Which and, means? Which, and the Lord, because the Lord has heard you of your misery. Now, I looked it up in the Bible, in the, in the NIV, this is what it says, I can't believe this, he will be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand will be against everyone. Yeah. Follow that then, come on. Okay. <laughs> What's um, what picture does that give you? <laughs> it's probably an accurate one describing his character yeah. um, and the situation was brought about by Abraham's poor decision making or yeah. desperation <laughs> it was that fueled it um, but the other point I picked up was that the angel sent Hagar back to uh, Sarah because Hagar then shared part of that blessing while she was there and also the significant thing for Hagar was that she met with God yeah uh, I think the phrase was I've you know the God who sees me um, and I think that's very powerful not just for Hagar being a nobody in that setup but for us today that actually the most amazing news that we have is that God sees us. Um, and I don't think that's something to be afraid of, but something to be embraced, um, in that God knows everyone and everything. So in fact, there's no hiding logically. 
Um, and I remember Frank Skinner in a TV programme saying that as a Catholic he was used to having his uh, whole life monitored, but it was like a CCTV sort of teacher, you know, bad marks, you've done this, this, this and this wrong. But I think God isn't like that. He knows us and he understands us. Um, and it's a bit more like um, Keith was saying on Sunday morning that when he looks in the mirror, he sees something negative. But if he sees his daughter or his wife in the mirror, it's, oh, that's my daughter, that's my wife. And when God looks at us, it's, well, that's my child. I made that child. They're good. Um, and it's that love and that acceptance, even knowing everything, is what is so precious and amazing and mind-blowing about the relationship that God wants us to enjoy with him. Yeah. And it's not just from centuries ago, but it's for today and it's for now. And it's not when we think we're presentable, but actually in our darkest moments, in, on our worst days, we can never run away from his love. No. which I think is absolutely wonderful. Although on a bad day, I can't promise I remember it just like I do now. No. Okay. We're, we're drawing to an end, are we? I've got in here, Hagar actually addressed God, Elroy, God sees me. Mm -hmm. And in this place, I have seen the one who sees me. And we want to finish this session by asking you one more question. There's, when you're praying in the privacy of your own home, when it's just you and God, how do you address God? We spent the last 25 minutes or so talking about names and how we address one another and how we came by name and why it was. How do you address God when it's just you and God talking? Mm. We, we went through an exercise a few months ago in the church where people were asked to think how many terms are there for God. Mm. Now we're asking you a slightly different question. How do you address God? I know that I call him Father when it's just him and me. Mm. Uh, and finishing this session as well, one of the things that struck me is that what God asks us to do is to be part of a new story where he's writing it with us. Well, he's the author of it and that it is something new and it is special and it is and it is a kind of intimate, well, it is an intimate relationship um, and that whilst he rarely wipes the pain of our backstory. He does transform and he does use us and he does restore us and he does create his life in us. Mm. And I think that's so exciting. Especially, and the fact that God wants to and is engaged in doing that is so wonderful. I heard a description of hell, or I read about it a few weeks ago, and basically you could think of hell in terms of people being left to their own vices, where there is no God to help them discover who he created. And that's rather powerful that we can actually screw ourselves up so easily without him. I think so. Anyway, and over now to um, a song, and we'll join you in about 10 minutes. Uh, thank you for coming back and joining us again. 
Uh, we've dealt with uh, chapter three very briefly. Please read it because there's lots of good stuff in there that we didn't have time to develop. Um, and now, before we go on to chapter four, Alan's going to tell us the um, results of his research about bread and the questions he asked. Just say, I think Andy's got it right. It, I, he's done the same research as I did. I, my mention was 492 times in the Bible, but various commentaries give different numbers. But I also tested one of my grandsons recently. We were having dinner with my daughter and her family a couple of days ago. I asked the youngest grandson how many types of bread, and his answer couldn't have been simpler. Two. And I think he simply meant brown and white. <laughs> but but I, I took the other grandson into one of our local supermarkets in here with Joan the other day and to engage him, after all, how many 14-year-olds enjoy going shopping with their grandmother? I said, how many types of bread do you think there are? So he said, about 10. So let's go and count. And we stopped counting at over 100. And that's just in the supermarket. I did the same exercise in another supermarket and also stopped counting at over 100. There's lots of bread. Mm -hmm. Or the other way of looking at it, that's what you do when you're retired. <laughs> there were some other and, answers, weren't there, as And well. in terms of how, what do we call God when we pray to him, um, we've got a variety of Lord, Lord or Jesus, dear Lord, Lord or Father. I, th I think I've heard myself calling him Father God uh, quite a lot quite recently. What's your uh, title of choice, as it were? Normally, and I was listening to Joan, Joan's like me, uh, father. Just simply father. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and actually we all know that Abba means daddy as well. It's not just the form formal father, but it's the personal daddy who's safe to go to. Um, so turning to the chapter four, which is tables, I'll deal with some questions that were thrown at us. Um, and having researched the rotor for the, this three-month period, I can confirm that we as a church um, share bread together about once a month. Um, my personal experience of breaking of bread comes from a variety of traditions. Uh, when I first became a Christian, I was in the Church of England. Um, and as a teenager, I think I was a bit disconcerting. Be well, you know I'm disconcerting now. Um, but God had been speaking to me. He'd opened the Bible up to me. Um, and when my parents thought the C of E was a safer option, I realised the liturgy contained so much um, of what the Bible said about God that I just grabbed it and would repeat it knowing what I was repeating which was scripture and part of that was also communion so you would have um, prayers that would be singing praises you know glory to God um, his holiness um, there would be um, a prayer of repentance, which is mentioned in the chapter, um, where we come and tell God how we've messed up and come and ask for his forgiveness. Um, there's prayers for other people. Um, there are lots of prayers that show um, different aspects of what God has done for us in the you know, in sharing, in dying and rising again. Um, so, yeah, it's been a part, an important part of my walk with God. Uh, then I've shared it on a, yeah, a youth camp out in the middle of a field. 
I've shared it in homes with friends when we've had meals. We've also shared bread and wine. Uh, we've done it here in our church on a regular basis. And before COVID, we used to share bread and the wine in a cup. Now we do it in small cups and wafers. I don't think it matters if the format changes. We're still worshipping the same God. Um, and also the other thing that this chapter um, didn't quite amuse me, but it brought back strands that I learned many years ago. So like, so a sacrament, an outward visible sign of inward spiritual grace. I can reel that off because it was taught to me when I was a teenager. And it's something that means something to me that God can take something that's ordinary and it means something else. Um, and I'm not really too fussed about, um, you know, the theology behind what happens to the bread and wine. Does it really turn into it, doesn't it, or whatever. And I love the sort of simplification, not the simplification, but just the uh, comment that it means Jesus is available here. Isn't that what church should be about? Jesus is available here. Um, I, I think that's really exciting. Yeah. What about your experience of breaking of bread? Well, I think one of the things that's emphasised both in the book and my own experiences, and that certainly when we um, take communion in the, in the church fellowship, that it focuses you on Christ. Mm. You're no longer focused on the preacher or the singers or some um, activity that's been, just been taking place. You're thinking about Christ and the fact that he gave his life uh, for us. And when we come to the bread and the cup and focuses on Jesus then, not those other peripherals. Oh, I, I, th I think that's very important. And also that we come with empty hands. Um, that is, yeah, when we were in the old style, when we used to receive bread, it was with empty hands. And right. actually it's the perfect way to approach God um, that actually we don't bring anything to the table, he does. Um, and I love the phrase in the, um, in the book that it says, you know, as a mantra, we're told to tell ourselves we are enough. And actually that's a lie. We're not enough, but Jesus is. And that is much more secure mm -hmm. than if we try to be enough for ourselves as it were well, I'll, I'll read out what glenn says about that open and uh, open hands yes. pit there uh, open hands at communion also remind us that we've let go of the reins the root of sin is the desire to be in charge of our own lives um, to play uh, to play god's role in our own story to be the source of our own identity to be the captain of our own destiny but open hands are a way of saying we're not grasping for control anymore. We're handing everything over to God. Mm, absolutely. Um, while I was reading the chapter as well, um, they, ca they came to a realisation of um, coming to break bread as a way of bringing people together after what had been a horrible event in their church where the focus had kind of slipped off God and he talks about it being a place of healing um, and then further on in the chapter he talks about family and actually you don't choose your family um, certainly with our human families we're born into the families we're born into there's nothing we can do about it and actually if the church is 
functioning as it should do, God's the person who does the inviting, um, and as members of his family, we should be embracing that. Um, and everyone in the fellowship knows that I've been making bad choices um, myself, or I would be if God hadn't intervened a long time ago. And, you know, my husband being the only person ever on my no-no list taught me that actually it's much, not safer, but... I've, I've lost the word, but I've learned to let God choose my friends, not to have preconceptions of who people are, um, but to have a bit of patience and see where relationships go to and where friendships go to. Um, and yeah, I think my life has been so much richer because of that. And I can't say I get it right all the time. My friends will tell you I don't get it right all the time. But letting God put his family together is a safe place to be. Um, and one of the reasons I was heartened when I read that chapter was I recognised our church in it, in that our church is on a much smaller scale than Glenn's church, which I think runs into the thousands. Um, but when you look at us as a group of people, the only person who could have put us all together is God, because we have different interests, we come from different backgrounds in so many different ways, probably not our own choice, but because God's put us together, it works. That's right. We've um, come, come together as a family. Absolutely, and, and I've been coming to the church since the mid-90s, and what attracted me was I realised there was a group of people wanting to follow God and wanting to work out what family looked like, not just on a Sunday, but during the rest of the week. Um, Alan, you've joined our church more recently. What's been your impression? Fundamentally, it was the welcoming attitude of people. And that struck Joan and I when we came in, that people were welcoming. We weren't ignored. And I've seen the fellowship doing that to people who've come since us as well. That very welcoming attitude. And it is lovely to see and even more lovely to experience. <laughs> That's lovely. That's good. Um, and I've totally lost my throat now. <laughs> but well, I, one of the things that makes it easy, I think, is the tables. And we're talking about tables yeah. here. And we literally sit around tables. And the table aspect of the orientation of the fellowship at the moment came out post-COVID. It was to do with the need to sit in groups rather than regimented queues or pews. Mm -hmm. And I like it. And it makes people focus on each other at various times through the service. You can interact with people. And I think the tables aspect of it helps that. Mm. And I wanted to make sure that we got the next bit in before we finish tonight, which is, um, as you described it, a, diff a slightly different view of the prodigal son story. Uh, but before we start that, I want to read a verse that struck my mind um, a, f a few weeks ago. It's from Luke 13, and it's from the message. Um, and I think it's relevant tonight because we're talking about God inviting us to his table, to his feast. Um, and it's the one about the narrow door, so it's, it, it's sobering reading, but I don't think it should frighten us. But 
in the message it says this, a lot of you are going to assume that you'll sit down to God's salvation banquet just because you've been hanging around the neighbourhood all your lives. And actually just coming to church isn't enough. It's grasping, a re- not grasping, but taking hold of the relationship God wants to have with you and following his ways, that's our guarantee of being at God's feast. It's doing things his way. Um, And so when people in the church get things wrong, it's always good to have a good relationship with God because you can always ask him what he thinks about it. And I think it is such a privilege that as Christians, even though God is who he is, we all have a direct line to him. We don't have to go through the pastor to the bishop to the king to whoever. We've got a direct line that is always open, that God is always accessible to us. And that is such a privilege for us that we shouldn't overlook. Anyway, over to the prodigal son, Alan. I'll leave it to you. Okay, fair. I'd mentioned to Jackie that one of the things that struck me about this book when I was reading it was Glenn's take on the prodigal son story. We're all familiar with it, and I don't intend to go through the story itself in detail. But what I will bring up is how it actually comes about. When you you read um, Luke 15... It's the prodigal son story is actually one of a series of stories mm. and it starts with the, the parable of the lost sheep uh, where the farmer with a hundred sheep in the field had realised he'd lost one and he leaves the 99 to go and look for the lost odd one. Mm-hmm. And those of us who are counted in the 99 think, well, thank goodness it was, wasn't me, I'm safe. I'm not the lost one. But then he goes on to the next story which involves the the woman with 10 coins and she loses one of the coins and turns her house upside down until she finds it and the simile here of course is that we're one of the nine that's okay and safe not the one that's got lost so then you come to the prodigal son story where there's the father with the two sons and the one who sought his inheritance um uh, earlier than life and then goes off and squanders it and when he returns he's welcomed with open arms by the father but Glenn concentrates for a short while on the other son the one who stayed at home so I can find it quickly here then Um, uh, both brothers he claims that both brothers were lost both sons had left the house that when the father when the son who'd stayed at home realized that his brother had returned he was resentful of the fact that that son was now getting all the attention are we like that in our relationship with God? Or do you think we're safe? What do you think, Jackie? Um, I think there is an element that just going to church and paying lip service to it, you might think, ka got that, I'm okay. But actually, if we made a commitment to God two days ago, two years ago, 20 years ago, we are secure because we made that commitment, Mm. but we've got to make sure that we're still doing life with him on a daily basis, because otherwise we risk not remembering his ways or actually not living his ways. Um, And 
the other thing that struck me as I was thinking about this of bread being so common because we have supermarkets we've forgotten how important God's promise to Israel was was I will provide food for you in the disciples prayer or the Lord's prayer it says give us today our daily bread mm. and I think there's no shortcut in our relationship with God other than we have to keep on doing it every day and it's as we're doing um, life with him that we may avoid the going off completely on a tangent and having to come home or we have also avoid the being estranged from dad even though we're still in his house mm. because we've forgotten who he is and what he's done for us yeah that's interesting and, and i can keep with the bread theme for just a minute yeah i really relate a little story if i may with joan's permission at home <laughs> i asked joan recently how long she'd been making bread for and we reckoned that it was around 40 to 45 years so i was a little bit surprised the other day when i walked in to smell the smells of new bread just being made mm. and i said to joan how's it gone she said it went wrong i said what do you mean it's gone wrong you've been making bread for years and years and years yes she said but there was something went wrong i think it was the proving mm -hmm. and, and gone wrong. the bread looked perfectly fine to me and when we tasted it later it tasted as wonderful as it always does the point i'm making is that she thought in her mind something had gone wrong and then we like that with our relationship with god at times what we think is simple and we do over and over and over and over again just occasionally it doesn't go quite the way we want and he's there to look after us oh yeah uh, i i love the phrase his faithful care mm. um and also the um another phrase that came that i came across was that god is close to the needy and he protects against those who would condemn them mm. and and i think that when we're, we want to condemn ourselves or someone else, we've got to remember what God's priorities are, um, that he is, close, he is close to us, but actually we need to recognise that we need him. Yeah. Um, and I think um, Glenn made the point that one of our main problems, as you commented before, is pride. We yeah. think we can do life without him. Uh, risky business if you do. Mm. going back in the book a little bit now there's an exchange I did mention to you that I found one particular aspect of the book quite hard hitting yeah. and it's on page 71 if people want to look it up afterwards right at the bottom where he's talking about our own relationship with the church that we're members of we can see ourselves in this exchange so often we try to distance ourselves from the ones the father keeps embracing mm. we'd prefer to have God to ourselves and we'd rather enjoy a Jesus and me kind of Christianity. We'd rather church be the place where we gather with just a few close friends. We don't want distractions or interruptions or undesirables. We want the feast. We just don't want the family. Yeah, and actually, really hard hitting, I yeah. thought, because he, earlier in the book he's talked about a, an undesirable character who was rejected by members of the church. And they eventually did embrace this character and saw him for his true self. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think that's something we shouldn't just pay lip service no. to. But and that let, can be hard. But let God um, nudge us into real relationships with people who are hurting. Because yep. actually we're all hurting in some way. 
and we all need his touch. Um, and also, even when we're hurting, God can use us to uh, bless other people as well. So yeah. I think we're drawing to a close in terms of this chapter, and that brings to an end, I think, the first stage um, in the book, which is blessed. Mm. Um, and then when you join uh, the next session, you're moving on to the section called broken. Um, going back to the bread being blessed, broken and given. So thank you very much for joining us. I uh, hope you've found some of it thought provoking and God bless. Yeah, God bless.